Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor. Doctor. It's already Monday. It's already Monday and it's the week of Thanksgiving. And I mean, for those of you that are, you know, that celebrate or are in a place in the world where that corporate holiday is celebrated, uh, it's already Monday and it's Thanksgiving week. And I feel like I'm busier than I should be (laughs) during a holiday week. Yeah, I think we really need to reevaluate this work-life balance because... As the pandemic continues, I find myself getting busier and busier and my days are filling up longer and longer. And people are now asking me to do evening events. And so now my workday is no longer 10 a.m. to 6, but it's like 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Right. Right. And and there is, you know, there is something to be said for being able to bracket your time and saying, okay, I'm going to you know, work for three or four hours in the morning, and then I'm not going to come back and work again until five o'clock this evening. But that's not the way life happens, right? right? I mean, we we are creatures that are conditioned to, um, you know, work when we're awake or work in those kind of normal hours of work, whether we have time to do that or not. And so, yeah, I'm with you. It's it's crazy. And I think I wonder how much of it is related to our need to that, that there's a fear of feeling as if we aren't productive enough during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And therefore we're saying yes to more things um, in order to thwart that fear of um, kind of the unknown. Well, I, I know for myself, I'm not saying yes to everything. Um, so it, I think it's the way things are just being scheduled and stacked yeah. is that it, it's a it's an illusion of a lack of spaciousness, but I still have a lot of spaciousness. Sure. Um, but just today has been a very long day, and I, you know, also I this time of year I'm typically with my with twelve thousand of my closest friends at the American Academy of Religion, and yeah. so my body is is not used to working in this way during right. this time of the year. And so, um, yeah, just just finding myself fatigued and tired and wanting to take some time off. But also, um, the I just learned, and he put it on Facebook, so I feel like I can say this, but I just learned that Josh Scott was diagnosed with COVID-19. Yes. And yeah. um, I feel like the, the number of people who are contracting the virus – in my circle is growing. Right. I mean, we talked last week about, you know, my contraction and the contra- my hus- my husband's contraction and we had several close friends, our entire circle of friends, you know, is is healing from COVID and um, you know, Josh is Josh is the pastor at Grace Point Church in Nashville and is very much like us in the way that you know, he cared for himself mm-hmm. and took precautions and um, and it, it this is proving to be a virus, as we've said, that um, is completely indiscriminatory and uh, doesn't doesn't care who you are, or how protected you are. It's going yeah. to find its way to you. So we're beginning to have some uh, announcements by the president elect regarding uh, how how the cabinet is going to begin to shape up. How are you feeling about that? I don't know. I, I think it's still early to see. I know that Biden is making an attempt to, quote unquote, diversify his cabinet. But is that it? What is that a function of? Right. Is, is that a function of sort of liberal progressive policy or 
are we trying to build a better political future? I'm in the camp of trying to build a better political future. I think that diversity is just a code word for tolerance. Um, I don't think just sprinkling people of color onto a cabinet necessarily does anything unless you're committed to the future of those people. And so, um, but you know, there's been a lot about canceling student loan debt and Mm -hmm. I'm all game for that. Yeah. Come on. (laughs) So (laughs) give me that future. Exactly. That's the kind of future I want to live in. I want to live in a world where that bill just doesn't exist anymore. So well, I'm with you. So, but, but I'm super excited about today. I was going to say, I hope you, you know, do a couple jumping jacks, get your energy up, uh, drink a, a cup of caffeinated tea or coffee and um, get ready for our conversation. So we began our conversation on mental health uh, several weeks ago. We hope that all of you had had a, have had a chance to listen to that, to engage After we with took that. a hiatus for two weeks because I of know. coronavirus. I know. I got, I got sick and, and screwed it all up. Um, but, you know... We really are committed to finding a way to thwart the stigma around mental health, but also helping us all be um, engaged in in how how our own health and the health of those around us can uh, affect uh, the work that we're doing in the world. And so we're really excited to continue the series today with um, a dear friend of yours, and um, I'm certain to be a a future dear friend of mine. Um, We are welcoming today Dr. Hillary McBride. Um, Hillary is... uh, has her PhD from counseling and psychology from the University of British Columbia. Um, You may know her or may have heard of her as one of the co-hosts of the popular podcast, The Liturgist. Um, That is where I first came to know um, uh, of Hillary and of her uh, really, really smart work. Um, But she is also an author. She is, um, she does amazing work around trauma and eating disorders and body image Um, And she is going to join our conversation today on mental health. And we could not be more thrilled to have her. Hillary, welcome to the Activist Theology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Yes. What a joy. I've been waiting so long for this. I, I feel excited. Yeah. <laughs> so excited. And and I just want to add to your introduction of Hillary, and that is Hillary is not only a wealth of resources, she, she was able to give me the name and contact information of the psychologist who diagnosed my autism. But she's also a resource of being able to point people into the right direction. And I think that is a really helpful um, conversation partner or interlocutor to have that, you know, here's somebody who is trained in a particular field, who who has a wealth of knowledge, who can just sort of point you into a direction. And there you have it. You come you come into your own sense. And so I'm really grateful that Hillary is a resource. Oh, thank you for saying that, Robin. I think you're just speaking so much too. I think when psychology is doing what it's supposed to do, or when I could say when we are doing with psychology and with our training, what we're supposed to do, we give it away and we allow information and resources to be something that is empowering and liberating and helps return people to themselves, not a way that we further pathologize, further categorize or distance a person from their community or from each other. So I feel, I feel moved to hear that that's how you experience me because that feels like a very important motivational um, or activation for me in in my training. Mm. Amazing. Well, Hillary, why don't you give our listeners a little bit more information about you, about your work, mm-hmm. um, anything that you think can inform the conversation that we're gonna that we're gonna have today. Okay. Yes. I'll locate myself for you. And this is always helpful too, when I come into a conversation to be able to name who I am um, as a way to, to be connected to myself in all of this. 
So I, I love listening. I love asking questions. I feel so motivated by curiosity and wonder. That feels like an orienting principle for me in, in how I show up in the world. And I'm very aware that my ability to stay connected to that, to be curious and open-hearted instead of shutting down comes from a sense that I didn't have to make that part of myself go away to be loved growing up, that in my family home, both my parents are therapists. Uh, and while that they are on their own journeys and have their own stories, definitely that, that create complexity in my family history, I think about the way that I was able to, to understand the person and understand myself and didn't have to, to make parts of myself go away, particularly my curiosity and wonder and interest in people and my my um, orientation to exploration of the world. So I come from a family. Um, both my parents are therapists. My brother has also done graduate training um, at the master's level in counseling psych. And so we have this really funny little bubble, the, the four of us in terms of our interest in mental health and the thriving person. And I can see that um, my parents as immigrants and my parents as people who grew up on farmland and had a preoccupation with hard work, but also connection to land and connection to community gave me some gifts that I didn't even realize were gifts until I became, I would say, my became more aware of the way that the world works and how different our family was growing up. But I... I didn't want to be a therapist. I really was determined to find my own voice. I really wanted to make sure I was my own person because I think when you come from a family of therapists, people put that on you and expect that to happen in a way. And so I studied violin. Um, I I went to school to study performance violin and to become a performer, uh, an orchestral performer and um, someone who worked in the music industry, I would say more in a classical sense than maybe in a more of a popular sense. And I found it really hard to be healthy as a person while being a violinist. And that I don't think that there's anything wrong with violin or classical music. But for me, my relationship to the pursuit of perfection within classical music felt like a way for the other wounds that I was carrying to kind of have deeper roots in my life. And, and that really has to do with my history of having an eating disorder and having this really complicated, painful, abusive relationship with my body, which I understand now was me just trying to manage what it felt like to be in pain, what it felt like to be a good woman in the world, behave the way that the world was asking me to, and to modify my body accordingly. So I had this perfectionistic, rigid, harming relationship with my body that I understand was my my best attempt at caring for my my pain and felt like really I had to get out of these systems that reinforced the perfectionism that I was trying to to get away from. And so left violin, uh, lived in a birth house for a while, helping helping the birth process along, being with these humans who were birthing babies. And I did that in the Northern Philippines in this kind of tribal village where there wasn't access to routine medical care. And it really was through being with people through the birth process that I came to understand a worldview about that I carry with me into the profession of psychology, wondering how we navigate things that would otherwise seem overwhelming, but actually give us access to our true selves when we are accompanied skillfully? How do we trust the journey of being human and the life that comes through pain when, when we understand that we are not broken and that we can, yeah, we can navigate difficult things and stay connected to ourselves? So there is something that I learned from the midwifery practice and from being in that birth house that really stays with me as I practice psychology. Um, but it was coming home and not getting into a midwifery, a midwifery program at the university here in town that made me think, well, why don't I just study psychology in the meantime? And it really felt like, oh, I had found my own way back to it. And I understood the process of being with other people who were in intensity in a new way, in a way that I felt like I was choosing. And I got really interested in that time in research. I got really interested in 
understanding the politics of doing research at an academic level and how to do research in a decolonizing and a liberating and restorative way. And that to me felt like another thrust towards how to repair our communities, how to be fully myself. And so now I see myself as someone who is curious and who loves to listen and understand, but having these different dimensions to it. So you, as you'd mentioned, I am a therapist and I write and, but I also teach at the university here and I, um, I research. I'm really interested in asking questions and doing exploratory research, not around psychopathology, but primarily my research looks at exceptional experiences that we don't have a lot of space culturally to talk about and what we can learn from people who are doing well in, in situations that would otherwise be really challenging to do well in, how we can understand what the thriving human looks like. And really this new dimension of the field of psychology that came about in the 90s and the early 2000s that we call positive psychology that looks at not just understanding diagnoses and diagnostic labels and how to minimize symptom presentation, but what do we do? How do we thrive as humans? And what's going on? And what are some of the social and community and political factors that impair our mental well-being? And how do we return ourselves to our natural state, which I believe is not broken, but is actually to be well, to be better than fine, um, to be connected to ourselves and to each other. So I'm hoping that that gives you a little sense, not only of me, but some of the, the values behind the work that I do. Yeah, that's really amazing. I'm I'm so grateful for your voice and I have learned so much from you over these last few years just by really listening to you um, oh, over you. over airwaves just like this one. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, uh, guide and and be really intentional about, you know, and and thoughtful about the way that you affirm every single person that you that you come in contact with. Mm. So, uh, you know, as you know, the one of the the main kind of postures and perspectives that the activist theology project and therefore the activist theology podcast has in the world is to figure out and encourage one another on how we get our hands dirty in the work, what it means to put our hands and our feet uh, to the pavement, to our keyboards, to our uh, local organizations, whatever that work looks like for our listeners and us in our context. And, and then to, to really embody that in a way that, that speaks to um, a posture of liberation and a posture of healing and a posture of um, getting free, uh, not just, freedom for ourselves for freedom for all right and and so i think the the one of the big things that robin and i want to chat with you about at, on this episode is kind of how we do this work well as activists in protecting our mental health as we also work to protect the rights of our communities and the rights of others. Um, you know, this is a really timely conversation for a great number of our listeners in that much of the last nine months have been spent, um, you know, in the streets or working really diligently towards a, um, a, a, a process of healing that, that arose through the, um, the the killing, the multiple killings that we've seen of of black and brown people mm -hmm. throughout the states, and um, but there's so much um, there's so much potential for trauma and 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 devastating consequences that can come if the activist is not also equipped <laughs> to yeah. um, you know to care for themselves through this work, and so I wonder if you could. Um, maybe just kind of introduce us into how you see this work evolving in that way. And let's just kind of see where the, where that conversation takes us. And when you say how I see this work evolving in this way, can you just clarify one more time for me what you mean by that sentence? I want to really make sure that I understand what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. So I think how we as activists mm -hmm. 
are are conscientious of okay. and work to protect our mental health. Yes. As we're also working to protect the rights of those in our communities and those that are that are um, in need of liberation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would think a, a framework that's really helpful for me when I'm thinking approaching this question is to look to look at the human organism as phenomenological that there is that there's a story that I carry with me that shapes how I approach every single situation that I go through. And I'm speaking about me as I'm speaking about all of us, that we bring to a context, a history. And in the moments of intensity, we forget that the history of what we've been through shapes our reactions to the things that are in front of us and shapes other people's reactions to the things that are in front of them. So we're not all arriving at the same situation with the same resources or the same wounds. We're coming into our present moment with a unique narrative that we're telling that sometimes we're not even aware that we're telling. And so I just want to name that we're, there's probably a a lot of different kinds of people listening to us talk about this. And you're going to hear different things from what I'm saying based on what you've lived through. And I want to acknowledge that that's an okay thing that we can locate ourselves within how we interact with content. But that can also explain why we hear some things one way and another person might hear something a different way. So understanding our phenomenological disposition towards mental health and towards interacting with the world around us can just make sense of the fact that we're not necessarily all hearing the same content the exact same way. And then the second piece that I like to think about too is the the way that our, I would say the profession of psychology has done a real disservice to understanding the complexity of being human because it is too often told the story of the individual as disconnected from community in a way that we can actually understand from the neuroscientific evidence now. It's just not true that our brain is wired to be in connection and our brain and nervous system is telling the story of what it's been like to be not just us in community with people and in culture, but also ancestrally. Our body is telling the story of what our ancestors have learned to be afraid of have learned to um, survive by, have learned to celebrate through, and that that shifts and shapes our genetic expression in such a way that uh, really dismantles the narrative of the individual that we like to prop up within the field in the discipline of psychology. So I want to just kind of name that when we're talking about mental health, there are all of these factors that make it really hard to tease apart what is right for one person versus right for another person. Um, And I hope that each of us, as we're listening to this and engaging this conversation can just start from that place of acknowledging the complexity that, that there is no individual really, even when we look at it neurobiologically, that there is no self disconnected from others and there is no self that's disconnected from the past you or from all of the ancestral knowings, learnings, victories, and pains that have shaped your nervous system as you are in this moment. I love that. I have so many more things to say, but I want to hear what you want to say. Well, well, I, I just want Mm -hmm. to piggyback and ask about, because I, at, coming from a Latinx cultural background, I was enculturated into community, right. um, not the individual, which is right. white culture here in the States is very individualistic and um, live in the suburb and, you know, that sort of narrative of what society is. Mm-hmm. But as I have grown older, what I've also understood is that not only are we a collective um, body or a cultural body, but we also share a nervous system and as a culture. And thinking about these past nine months that we've been in quarantine, you know, we all sort of collectively are sharing in maybe what some would call a traumatic experience of living in a global pandemic, not knowing what is safe. Our animal bodies um, maybe are more perked up than normal. 
But there's also been this thing around uprisings and and people going into the streets and 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 if you think about a collective nervous system both being in on that action in the streets and also watching it does something to us um Mm -hmm. it shapes our response um both intellectually and our felt sense response in our body and and i'm wondering you know, if, if to be well is to be connected and to be within our window of tolerance, whatever that might, and that, that's different for everybody. Um, or maybe to be well is to take an antidepressant so that, so that you are within your window of tolerance, whatever, whatever being well is, how do we steward wellness when when all around us are, are traumas, traumatic experiences, are experiences that push us out of our window of tolerance. I mean, some activists um, chase after the adrenaline of being in the streets. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder how much of that is a trauma response, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just feel curious about those yeah. things. Yeah, I'm so glad you articulated that because I think you're you're kind of getting back to what I was saying when we asked like what is wellness and I think that's where we start to we need to ask the phenomenological question like what does wellness look like given my heritage, given my community, uh given what I've lived through before, uh given given the future that I need to create for my body and for my community as well. That there is, when we start to ask the question of wellness, it's very easy for us to fall into this trap of the perfectionistic wellness, where everything is perfectly in balance all the time. And I, I prefer to think about wellness or health as the arc that we take, where we are engaging responsibly in a life that is both meaningful and connected to other people, but to to be engaging responsibly in a life that is pursuing wellness, that has both responsibility taking and connection to other people. Sometimes in the moment, we actually have to disconnect from other people to be well. But if we're not taking that um, kind of uh, non-linear time-spanning narrative of wellness, it can be really easy to say, well, you're stepping out of an activist project. You're stepping out of being on the streets and you're shirking your responsibility. That's not well. Right. But being able to understand boundaries and limitations and when when we need to put gas in the tank and how it is actually not a way forward towards health if we were trying to get towards justice, but we are, I would say, being self or other abusive in the process. Mm-hmm. I think the way that we achieve these things and how we engage our bodies as beings in the way is just as important as the, the outcome that we're trying to search for. So understanding when to disconnect, understanding what is it that I need? Wow, what is my capacity to engage? And how does that make best use of my giftings and my sense of longing to be responsible and shifting shifting what's happening? Those are questions that we can ask. And it becomes yeah. very easy to look for trite responses to wellness. Like wellness means eating, you know, I'm not American and I live in Canada, so I'll use my Canadian references, but like I'm going to use the Canada food guide to understand what I'm eating, or I'm going to follow this guru's version of health. And it's much more complicated and much more non-linear to ask the question, what does wellness look like? And Mm -hmm. how am I stewarding and tending to my bodily self and my awareness that my bodily self is in community and occurs over time, not just this singular incident. Right. But those are harder questions to find answers to than saying, we'll just eat, eat these food groups and show up and get seven hours of sleep or nine hours of sleep a night or take your pill. We have to start making room for the complexity mm-hmm. of well-being and how that changes over time. Yeah. And I, you know, I think about... Um, I have a lot of opinions about the social justice movement um, here in the States and, and the ways that it actually mirrors 
an unhealthy nervous system. And, and I'm wondering how do we begin to make interventions into this nervous system to help steward wellness? I, you know, I don't know what the pulse is in Canada. Mm-hmm. And maybe you would say something similar that it's an unhealthy nervous system. Um, but at least here in the States, you know, the, the, the social justice system is, is still tracking with capitalism. It's still um, interested in goals and outcomes um, that as if social justice is something that can be achieved in an action. Um, and so I tend to think about the social justice, both narrative and the, the, the bodies that make up the social justice system here in the United States as an unhealthy nervous system because of some of the commitments that these folks are interested that, you know, they're not interested in stewarding wellness. They're interested in um, making some type of policy change, for example, which feels to me like a transaction over stewarding a more relational approach to creating a better world or creating wellness, if you will. Mm-hmm. Perhaps um, where I, I find myself coming up against what you're saying is using this metaphor of a cultural nervous system is helpful because it makes us, rem- it makes us remember our interconnectedness and the the process through which we navigate social spaces together. But if we're going to come back to the thing that probably I, I know more about and work with in within my expertise is when I think about the nervous system that's sitting in front of me, mm-hmm. I wouldn't ever use the language unhealthy. Mm-hmm. I would start to use the language, what purpose did it serve and how did it get that way? And what got truncated or fragmented that it started to function that way. Yeah. And so instead of even seeing the dysfunction, starting by seeing the function, what was what was it trying to do? Now I understand the problems of doing that on a political level because um, it's not necessarily always fair to center the function of a system, let's just say like capitalism or right. white supremacy. But what we may be able to do is ask the of the people within those movements who are utilizing those tools what is this doing for you? Mm-hmm. How is it helping you? What are you trying to get? Is there some unmet longing? Is there a system here that is trying to uh, express or repair some unfinished business or some relational wounds? Mm. And could we better understand what's happening here and a way forward if we not just look at the dysfunction of it, but we also actually look at the the misguided efforts that it is making as a system towards some sort of function. And I perhaps that's not a hard enough line for some people to take, or there there might be some criticism hearing me say that. But my favorite way of looking at this is actually through the clinical work that I do with people who come into my office um, and espouse really harmful ideas. And it's very easy for me to say, sit across from someone and say, that's a really harmful way of thinking about it. You shouldn't do that. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. But it transforms my engagement with those people if I remember from the beginning that I actually believe that there is something good underneath those people in those nervous systems and can help them explore what the frustrated longing is and find some other way to access connection. Because my guess is that underneath all of the things that we label as dysfunctional or healthy are people just trying to manage their pain. Right. That's it. Right. And so if we can make room for the pain and that's not everybody's responsibility and we don't all owe, you know, if we've been hurt by people, we don't necessarily owe them that that's a much bigger conversation around restorative justice and things like that. But for people in my position who sit with people who perhaps have been um, schooled in dominant culture and these oppressive ways of moving through political systems, I have the training to be able to say, tell me about your pain. 
And I want to see if we can metabolize that, that longing that's underneath that into something that doesn't hurt so many other people and doesn't hurt you. Mm-hmm. But it all starts with the assumption that the system underneath is doing something. It's just not doing what it's trying to do in a way that takes it towards health. Yeah, this is why I use the language composting supremacy culture, because we have to be in relationship with the thing or with the system or with the body that is potentially doing the harm. We have to be in some relationship with with that thing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and when we compost, you don't just throw out all your bad scraps. You also add some stuff to it to help create right. the mixture that turns into the mulch that you use in your garden. And so I think composting, you know, these practices that are unhelpful or that perpetuate harm on a collective level is is a is a way in and Mm -hmm. um and then also you know the the pain i i think about i don't know about canada if you've been able i mean we've talked about this privately hillary about grief and the grief that we hold as a result of in this country seeing two hundred and fifty thousand people died because of this virus you know like Mm -hmm. that's unfathomable Mm -hmm. how how do you how do you hold how do you hold that grief in a way that can steward wellness you know um so i think certainly sitting with the pain and and figuring out how to be in relationship with the pain you know right you know father richard Rohr says you can't push the river and so how can we be in the flow of these things to help mm-hmm. steward the kind of wellness that will create social healing? That's my question yeah. and my curiosity. Yeah, I love that question. And I think being with pain and not allowing it to overwhelm us and yeah. not allowing it to inhibit us is a skillfulness that many of us don't have. I mean, emotion regulation, like when we get into actually the specifics of what it means to have a nervous system that allows us to be flexible out in the world and connect with other people and also retain a sense of knowing about what is right to do deep empathy, but also to not get overwhelmed means that we not only know what we're feeling and make room for it, but know how to titrate it, Mm -hmm. know how to touch in on it without it consuming us. And understanding the way to take little bits out of it at a time or to sit with it in spaces where we can really be held in it. I mean, these are kind of advanced emotion regulation skills that I would say the average person does not have. In fact, one of the number one things that I hear for people when we start accessing pain is if I go there, it will overwhelm me. It will never stop. Mm -hmm. And the, that fear of it will never stop is something experientially that we learn from never having gotten to the other side of a wave of intensity. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like if you're hiking up a hill and all you see is up, 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 right. there isn't the experiential knowledge to know what comes down on the other side. You just see incline. You just see the intensity peaking. But emotions, interestingly, and this is kind of where I think it gets back to the social connection piece, the emotion centers of our brain or the parts of our brain that feel and learn how to experience feeling are the same parts of our brain that learn how to do connection and pick up these cues from other people about what's okay to feel and what's not okay to feel and what we have to tuck away and what we're allowed to feel and how. And so we learn through relationships, don't feel your pain. It's not okay. But what happens when you don't feel your pain and it's actually just part of life to feel pain It means that there isn't that felt sense, that experiential knowledge of how to go through it in a way that helps you come down the other side. Mm -hmm. So when we know how to be with our pain naturally, it allows us to be with other people's pain, Mm -hmm. which not only helps them feel less alone in it, but it helps them know they won't get buried with it, which helps us feel connected to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that it also then gives us the skill to say, I can stay with your joy too. And your joy is my joy Mm -hmm. because feeling isn't discriminated by our nervous system as being good or bad in the way that our language culturally has given us. We don't 
have good or bad feelings or positive or negative feelings. We have ones that we've been trained to move towards and ones that we've been trained to move away from. But to be able to be with feeling just as a category empowers us to be with other people in their feeling. And that includes their pain and their victory, their loss and their joy. Yes. And I know that, you know, early on when we were talking, I, you know, I had shared with you, I'm on this embodiment journey and writing about becoming embodied and, and how I, I live life and have for many years from the shoulders up that Mm -hmm. I live a life in my head, thinking and not feeling. And I think what is so true about our cultural nervous system is that we actually don't know how to feel anything Mm. that, that many of us chase after the high, we, we chase the adrenaline high of being in the streets and protesting without actually being able to feel the pain. Like I think about when we're in a protest and when we are showing up in the streets and when we are shouting, who is doing the shouting? Who is that? Is that your ancestor? Is that your inner child? Is that, who is that? And, and, and it, and our shouting becomes this like reaction to the present chaos. And we aren't able to regulate that moment in a way to actually be in touch with the pain of the moment and to discern who, who the voice is. What is the voice that is shouting? I feel curious about what you might have to say about that. Mm. Yeah, I'm just aware of the the advanced nature of feeling multiple things at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that comes to mind. That's actually, it takes a considerable amount of skill in our culture to remember how to feel. Mm-hmm. But then to be able to have enough space to feel multiple things at the same time, including things that are seemingly opposing, is very advanced. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of encouragement. But I want to articulate, I think, the language that I just used when I said remembering how to feel because we're born feeling. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the world is born feeling. It's... it's. Um, it's written into us in the same way that blinking and swallowing and digestion are. We have to learn how to not and to ask ourselves, what did it cost us to learn how to not feel? What did it cost us to be so disconnected that something we were born doing like blinking or swallowing or digestion was so foreign that we had to remember it? Mm. That kind of severing within the self does not come without a great cost and does not come without some sort of strategies to try to survive in light of being truncated, fragmented from ourselves. And of course, if feeling is where we feel alive, feeling is where we feel connection, feeling is where we feel pain. And there is a sense that we are not able to do it for ourselves and through ourselves. Sometimes it is easier to feel the intensity at a march. Or there are other thing, other people who will say things like, I can't cry for my own pain, but if you turn on a really sad movie, I can access mm-hmm. it then for the movie. Mm-hmm. So I love the idea of us asking the question, what's going on inside? And what are the feelings? And can there be multiple feelings at the same time? But the acknowledgement that it is so, so sad that we have to remember. Like we didn't, we weren't born disconnected living from the shoulders up right that's a learn that's a learned behavior oh yeah that i totally oh yeah i totally get you know one of the things that i love what you just said is um the existence of multiple truths or multiple feelings that multiple things are happening at the same time mm-hmm. and one of the pillars of white supremacy culture is the is binary thinking or either or thinking and the disavowal of multiple truths existing and so we have actually steward a culture into this either or thinking 
that I think contributes to the very thing that you're talking about, uh, the absence of our ability to be able to hold the reality of multiple mm-hmm. feelings happening at one time. This is this yeah. goes back to our cultural makeup, to our cultural body. Well, it's come back to what I said right off the top, that the only way to understand mental health is phenomenologically. Mm-hmm. It means that somebody is going to live through one experience and will be deeply traumatizing to them. The same person, or sorry, a different person will live through the exact same experience and it will feel like liberation and mm-hmm. freedom and um, the reclamation of what is rightfully theirs. Mm-hmm. And when we understand each being's reaction, each being's perspective in a single moment is not necessarily right or wrong, but is telling the truth about the life that they've lived that has been very real for them. Even the life that has shaped the life that they have lived, the lives of their ancestors and their communities. This is kind of a revolutionary way to approach mental health. It's a kind of a revolutionary way to understand other people's reactions and the ability to say, what is our reaction? Tell us about us. Mm-hmm. And what is your reaction? Tell me about you and tell you about you starts to create room for, for the, all of these stories to be in the room mm-hmm. in the same way that um, we can honor a person's pain. Then in response to a certain situation, we can also understand how a person is, is so able to thrive based on what they've been through and how, all of the experiences they've been through support them to do well in this moment that would perhaps make another person crumble. But it is revolutionary when we think about mental health or culturally when we think about each other to hold this phenomenological position, which acknowledges my reaction isn't necessarily the only or the right reaction. It's telling, telling you and telling me about what I've lived through. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like this is a great, like a great follow up to to what we like our own sharing of our own stories, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm I'm struck so much by the the conversation or the the thought process around the, you know the both the multiplicity of self, but also the multiplicity of experience and and of feeling. And I think. You know, Robin and I were both um, present in Charlottesville um, Mm -hmm. in August of 2018. And it was, or 2000, yeah. Um, And I I think that, you know, while there were pieces of that experience that were similar for both of us, there were also other pieces of that experience that were very, very different for us Mm -hmm. or that we responded to very differently. And I often find myself, especially when I am in a, you know, in, in the streets, in a, in a pro, either a protest or just a, a movement um, gathering, kind of looking around me to, to wonder about the experiences of those that I'm in this moment right. with. You know, right. I recognize fully that I am there in a, you know, in a pastor's collar, um, there is a perspective that people have of me in the middle of that movement experience, simply because of the way I look and, and mm. what I am wearing. Um, and, and, and yet that in no way tells them the story of what I am feeling in my bones, both as a response to whatever is happening at that moment in the movement, but also as a response to my lived experience around the way I bring my own uh, response and, and, and baggage of white supremacy and supremacy culture to the work. <laughs> and mm. so I'm struck by this, um, this, the beauty around the multiplicity of that experience and also to, to the extent that we have to, in this work, make space for 
the grace that is due to one another in in the in in our energy that we that we put around it we have got to be empathetic we have got to to manifest this spirit of gracefulness and empathy with each other whether we're in the streets or whether we're in an organization or whether we're simply engaging with our significant other or a partner in the work it's it, there is no right way to experience it. There is mm-hmm. there is simply a, a. I don't even know how to. I don't even know how to say what I'm thinking. It, it's it's less about the rightness of how you do it and more about the authenticity with which you do it. Hmm. It reminds me of something I talk about in therapy all the time, which is content is one thing, the story we're telling, but the process is often where the therapeutic transformation happens, not just mm. in the right ideas, not just in the right theology and the right politics, but in the way, the way is where we are embodied. The way is where we are connected. The way is how we transform the systems that, that we live our lives through. And this, this process piece of what's happening in me, what's happening in you, how are we listening to each other? Are we able to hold grace and see things differently and slow everything down. Mm-hmm. I just noticed that when everything is so um, is so important and it feels so urgent, it's really hard to have impulse control. It's really hard to emotionally regulate. And that's usually when we start to get into the spaces where we are most reactive. And it's our reactivity that is so useful when we are in danger, but it is not our reactivity that is the best guide when we are trying to build a new way forward. It is so helpful when we need to survive, but it is not helpful when we are trying to slow down and listen to ourselves or other people. Well, and urgency is a, a pillar of white supremacy culture, you know, like mm-hmm. everything has to be right now, right away. You know, I, mm-hmm. you know, this, this idea of process, you know, I talk a lot about relationship. How are we in relationship with the work mm-hmm. that we're doing? How are we in relationship with, um, with everything. I mean, I think it really comes down to relationship, which is another way of to talk about process. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think that if we can steward a relational way of being with one another, with trauma, with oppression, which is unprocessed trauma, and all the other things, if we can steward a relationality with these things, we, we might find we end up at a different place, but mm-hmm. culturally we have created such a system of transactions with activism or with trauma or with oppression that, mm-hmm. that we actually don't get a holistic, you know, where, whereas phenomenology would would help us have a more holistic view of what is happening, we have um, minimized that holistic view in exchange Mm -hmm. for a transaction, which gets us into all sorts of trouble. That's right. And so maybe one of the best questions, certainly the question that I find myself coming back to around this topic the most is, okay, I want to have right ideas. I want to have a right politics in terms of how I describe that and think about that. But how am I with people? How am I in the world? How am I encountering this content? And if the how of my engagement with these good thinkings, good thinkings, these good ideas, these good thoughts replicates the system that stands in opposition to what these thoughts or these theologies or these practices are, then I've missed it. Like I'm, I'm preparing a, a sermon series for my church right now about embodiment of the incarnation and how that is this invitation for us to um, connect with our trauma, connect with pleasure, connect with justice, connect with the lived experience of being a body in a way that takes us out of our um, kind of this, what I would call cognitive supremacy uh, paradigm in our Mm -hmm. culture. And what comes back to me over and over again is I would rather have people who lived in such a way that they were like Jesus, like whatever, than read the Bible. 
Like, and can there be a point at which we, when in the space of theology, can say that there are many people who embody Christ who have never read scripture? And what does that mean for these communities that we have where there is this kind of story about um, the right way to be a person of faith that looks a lot like just the perpetuation of these oppressive systems, but misses the way that we are. I love that. So good. So good. Mm -hmm. I, um, I feel like I just, um, had a, had a much needed, uh, therapy session myself. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you that when I do therapy with people, there is much less talking than this. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> this is like, I mean, this is an interesting way to think about mental health and therapy too, is like we we do therapy in a way that replicates the defensive structures that we use in the world where we yes. just engage with cognition. And when we're just engaging with cognition, we're just talking about the ways that we've learned to cope and we're getting new insights. But insight was not the problem in the first place. Is that we had an experience that made us fragment off from ourselves. And so we need, we need experiences, we need emotion, we need the body, we need movement, we need a felt sense of connection. Um, And I hope that when we are thinking about mental health, that we can remember our mental health is an embodied experience, Mm -hmm. not just these cognitive parameters or schemas that we often think of it in. Yeah. Thank you. Hillary, Mm -hmm. we can't thank you enough for sharing this time with us, for being engaged in the, the, the depth and, and breadth of conversation that we were able to have today. Um, I know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful and I, I know that I echo Robin's sentiments on that as well. Um, can you share with our listeners how they can follow you, how they can learn more about your work, how they can read some of the things you've written? Where's the best way for them to, to be in touch? Yeah. Yeah. So you can find my work on social media. I'm on Twitter at Hillary L. McBride or on Instagram at Hillary Leanna McBride. Uh, I've got a couple books out. One is more of a uh, kind of accessible version of some of my research so far, looking at uh, women's relationships with their bodies and how we how we love our bodies as are, uh, particularly when we've been socialized into womanhood. And a textbook about embodiment and eating disorders, as I was kind of mentioning just now, it has been so easy for us in the field of psychology to approach these body-oriented manifestations of pain from just a cognitive perspective. And so my work for the last number of years has really, in a clinical space and research space, been looking, how do we re-envision treatment of these body stories, the, the ways that our bodies are crying out in ways that make room for the body to talk instead of just imposing new cognition on the body. And then I've got another book coming out. Um, It was supposed to be out February 9th of 2021, but because of all sorts of things, some of them COVID related, some others, uh, it'll be coming out the end of 2021. And that's called, this is my body. The scandal. It's a scandal. scandal. (laughs) Yes. Robin knows all about it, but we've, uh, we've figured it out. There has been repair. There has been, sorting there's been new relationships formed um and so with with some different publishing houses my book is coming out in a coordinated release across canada and the u.s end of 2021 who's publishing it brazos is doing the u.s version and harper collins is doing the canadian version great great yes so feeling really good about that and so that's called this is my body which is all about it'll probably be a different slice but kind of like your work in your book robin Mm -hmm. uh what it means to be a body and what it costs us to be disconnected and Mm -hmm. some invitations particularly for those within dominant culture who've been fed the story that they are not their body um and have had the privilege of leaving their body but now need to reconnect Mm as a way to do their own work, their own reclaiming work. How do we come back into our bodies and why does that matter? Can't wait to read Mm. that. Yeah. I'm so excited about it. Amazing. Well, friends, we, um, we once again, thank you for joining us this week, for being on this journey with us, for living into your truth and your uh, collective desire like ours for liberation and justice. Um, A reminder that um, 
this week, this Thanksgiving week, we remain more grateful than we could say for you, for the way that you have supported this work, for your support of our podcast and, and us as individuals. And we are really, really thankful for you. You can continue to follow the work of Activist Theology um, on all social media channels at Activist Theology. Don't forget that Activist and Theology share a T. And we will be back next week with more uh, conversation and more thoughts around how we get our hands dirty in this work. And until next week, Robin. We got to get free. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds.